Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, November 28th, 2021. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so... When you came in, everybody got a piece of paper. I invite you to take that piece of paper out and a pencil or writing utensil. If you don't have a pencil or something, you can use your open up a notes uh, thing on your, on your app. For those at home, find something to write with. We are going to have a Christmas quiz. Don't worry, nobody had a chance to study. You're... you're you're right, in the, you're, you're right with everyone else here, and uh, there's going to be 10 questions. They're all multiple choice. Um, if you don't have anything to write with, just use your brain and remember what your answers are, okay? And we'll go over that. Everybody ready? We'll see what we know about the Christmas story. Here we go. Question number one. Which of the four Gospels tell the birth story of Jesus? A, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, meaning all four. B, Matthew and Luke. C, Mark and John. D, we don't know. Now, maybe you don't know, so you could put D, but you could also just guess for whichever one you want. All right? Question number two. How many pregnancies are recorded in the first Christmas story? A, one, B, two, three, or C, three, and D, we don't know. Number three. Who had more angelic visits, Mary or Joseph? A, Mary, B, Joseph, C, they had the same amount. D, we don't know. You're starting to get a pattern here. I'm always going to give you that we don't know as an option. All right, number four. What was the name of the angel who visited Joseph? A, Gabriel, B, Michael, C, Lucifer, D, we don't know. Got to watch out for those Lucifer visits. (laughs) Question number five. Where was the home of Mary and Joseph before Jesus was born? A, Nazareth. B, Bethlehem. C, both of the above. D, we don't know. Number six. How did Mary travel to Bethlehem? A, by donkey. B, by camel. C, she walked. D, we don't know. Number seven. Which animals were present at the manger? A, camels, donkeys, and sheep. B, donkeys, sheep, and oxen. C, cattle, sheep, and camels. D, we don't know. Number eight, how many magi or wise men came to see Jesus? A, three, B, four, C, six, D, we don't know. Question nine, where did the magi or wise men eventually find Jesus? A, in a manger, B, in an inn, C, in a house. D, we don't know. And question number 10. How many dreams did God use to communicate to Joseph? 
A1, B2, C4, D, we don't know. All right, are you ready? Do I need to ask you to switch papers so you don't cheat? Jesus is watching. All right, here we go. Question number one, which gospels tell the birth story of Jesus? The correct answer is B, Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke. All right. Question number two, how many pregnancies are recorded in the first Christmas story? B, two. That's right. Mary and Elizabeth, her cousin. Question three, who had more angelic visits, Mary or Joseph? The correct answer is C, they had the same. They each had one. An angel came to visit each of them. Joseph's is recorded in Matthew. Mary's is in Luke. Question four, what is the name of the angel that came to visit Joseph? D, we don't know. Gabriel is the name of the one that came to visit Mary, uh, but Matthew doesn't tell us what the, what the name of the angel was that came to Joseph. Question number five, where was the home of Mary and Joseph before Jesus was born? The correct answer is C, both of the above. Luke tells us that they were living in Nazareth before coming to Bethlehem. Matthew doesn't mention anything about traveling and just says that they lived in a house in Bethlehem. Question six, how did Mary travel to Bethlehem? We don't know. It doesn't say. Question seven, which animals were present at, at the manger? If you were cheating on, by looking on the, you're wrong because we don't know. We, we, don't, we don't know. It doesn't say which animals were there. Although pretty much every nativity scene thinks they know, right, and has the animals down there. Question eight, how many magi came to see Jesus? The correct answer is we don't know. We think there was three because they gave three gifts, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But Matthew doesn't actually say how many magi. Question nine, where did the wise men or magi find Jesus? In a house. Well done. In a house. According to Matthew, they were living in a house. And number ten, how many dreams did God use to communicate to Joseph? Four. Four, I know. He was like on speed dial with the angels or something, right? One in Matthew chapter one and three times in Matthew chapter two. So, uh, how did you do? Don't, don't worry. Everyone else did just as good as you did on that one, right? <laughs> Well, welcome to the first Sunday in Advent and a brand new sermon series entitled The First Christmas. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the season of Advent is the four weeks of leading up to Christmas. It's a time of expectant waiting and preparation. And not only does, does Advent look forward to the coming of the birth of Jesus, but also to the second coming when, when Christ comes again in final victory at the end of time. Now, I chose the title of this year's Advent series based on a fascinating book by Marcus J. Borg and John Dominic Crossan called The First Christmas, What the Gospels Really Teach About Jesus' Birth. And so much of what I'll be sharing over the next month of sermons comes from this book. Now, for starters, as you found out uh, in during the quiz, there are two separate Christmas stories in the Gospels. 
Matthew's account begins with Joseph as the main character, uh, and Mary neither speaks nor receives any uh, revelation in Matthew's account. There's no account of the birth, there's no swaddling clothes, no stable, manger, no angels singing to the shepherds. That's all from Luke's story. The Magi take center stage in chapter 2 of Matthew's uh, story, along with Herod the Great. And it's Herod's violent anger that sends Jesus and the first family to Egypt, and then eventually home to Nazareth. Now, Luke's story, that has uh, Gabriel coming and speaking to Mary, and it has Mary's interaction with her cousin Elizabeth, the birth of John the Baptist. Luke tells about the census that requires Mary and Joseph to journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. There's no room in the inn, and the birth in the manger, and the shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night, and the angelic chorus singing, peace on earth. But it's interesting that there are two very different stories surrounding Jesus's birth. And despite our need to want to harmonize them and and, uh, to make them connected into one story, uh, the authors say this. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with harmonizing. No point in condemning Christmas pageants or artistic or musical renditions that do so. But there is great value in recognizing their differences and reading them as separate stories. Reading each as a separate narrative and paying attention to the details of the text enriches these stories and adds greatly to their power. The meaning grows larger, not smaller. So, before we get into the specifics of the two Christmas stories in Matthew and Luke, I thought it'd be helpful to kind of set the context in which all of this came to be. Now, Even though the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the first books in the New Testament, they're not the earliest uh, written books, according to our church history. Scholars believe that the letters of Paul were the first books penned, coming around uh, maybe two decades or so after Jesus, around the the 50s uh, in the first century. Mark's Gospel came around 70 CE, and then it wasn't until the 80s or the 90s, the last two decades of the first century, that Matthew and Luke penned their Gospels, which means that the birth stories of Jesus didn't get written down until over 50 years after Jesus left this earth. Now, on a side note, it's interesting, the Apostle Paul, who wrote uh, many of the books in the New Testament, he speaks extensively about the death and resurrection of Jesus, but not a single word about his birth. I found it interesting that Borg and Crossan refer to the two Christmas stories as parabolic overtures. It's a big phrase. They're parabolic overtures. But what he says is that each one is, uh, in in Matthew chapters 1 and 2, and in Luke 1 and 2, it's like a a mini gospel for what the rest of the book is going to be about, right? So in both cases, Matthew and Luke insist that the birth of Jesus is the glorious completion and the perfection of the Hebrew tradition in which Jesus was born. But each one tells the story in a little bit different way and highlights different aspects of that rich tradition. The major theme in Matthew is that Jesus is the new Moses or a renewed Moses. In the first two chapters of both Matthew and in the Old Testament book of Exodus, There is an evil ruler, Pharaoh in Exodus, King Herod in Matthew, who plots to kill 
all the newly born Jewish males and thereby endangers the life of a predestined child who is saved only by divine intervention and heavenly protection. Matthew's Christmas story includes five divine dreams, four to Joseph, one to the Magi, five scriptural fulfillments, citing such Old Testament books as Isaiah, Micah, Hosea, Jeremiah, and 2 Samuel. And of course, the nod then is given to Moses, who who, uh, traditionally wrote the five books uh, of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then later, when Jesus delivers his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew portrays Jesus as the new Moses on a new mountain, giving a new law. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. So Matthew's vision, Jesus is the new Moses. When it comes to Luke's gospel, there are three major themes that appear in both the first two chapters in the Christmas story and throughout the rest of his gospel. First, Luke has an emphasis on women. Sometimes it's the women themselves. Other times he balances the the reference of a man to uh, another woman coming in the story. And Matthew is focused primarily on Joseph in the Christmas story. Luke then puts Mary front and center and even spends time with Zachariah and Elizabeth. And more than any other gospel writer, Luke not only mentions women, but also balances out those male characters with female characters and stories. Luke 8, 1 to 3 says this. Soon afterwards, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 disciples were with him, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Herod, steward Chusa, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their resources. So Luke has an emphasis on women. Second, both Luke's Christmas story and his gospel have an emphasis on the marginalized. In chapter 2, the angels come to announce the birth of Jesus, not to royalty, but to the shepherds. And as a class, shepherds were even lower on the social order than peasants. More than any other gospel, Luke writes to the poor, the outcast, and the marginalized. In the Sermon of the Mount, in Matthew, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke simply says, blessed are the poor. Jesus talks about, in Luke's gospel, inviting the poor, the crippled, the, the lame, and the blind to your banquets. He tells stories about the rich man and Lazarus, the poor man. He has a parable of the Pharisee and the repentant tax collector, which we looked at last week. And even the tax collector Zacchaeus uh, professes after his encounter with Jesus that he's going to give half his money away to the poor. Third, Luke has an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And this is probably Luke's most important theme, not only in the Christmas story, but throughout his entire gospel, including the book of Acts. Did you know that Luke wrote Acts? Uh, the intro to Luke and the intro to Acts has an intro to, uh, to the same person, and so scholars believe that the same author wrote both books. Well, both Matthew and Luke mention that the child Jesus is from the Holy Spirit, of course, but Luke mentions the Holy Spirit seven other times in the, ver- the first two chapters of Luke's book. And then throughout the, the rest of Luke and Acts, there's so many other instances of the Holy Spirit coming and having a role to play in the story including Jesus' baptism, 
Jesus' time in the wilderness, the beginning of his ministry in Galilee, his first sermon in a synagogue in Nazareth. And of course, the big event in the book of Acts is Pentecost, the, the birthday of the church where the coming of the Holy Spirit came and empowered the first believers to go out and take the good news throughout all of the world. Now, we can't set the stage for the first Christmas without looking at some of the historical and political uh, context in which these stories are set. And that involves the Roman Empire. Now, the power of the Christmas story comes when we see the kingdom of God set up against the kingdom of Rome. In the mid-first century B.C., uh, Julius Caesar was appointed as the perpetual dictator of the Roman Republic. And then he was assassinated in 44 BCE, and civil wars throughout the Republic ensued for quite some time, until Octavian, uh, the grand-nephew and adopted son of Julius Caesar, finally defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra in 31 BC. Four years later, the Roman Senate granted him uh, overarching power, and he became Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor. Augustus, by the way, is Latin for one who is divine, and his Greek title, Sebastos, means one who is to be worshipped. Well, the imperial power of the Roman Empire was established by maintaining four key pillars. The first was military power, or the control of forces and violence. The legion was the largest uh, military unit of the Roman army. There were five to 6,000 trained fighters in a legion. And at the time of Jesus' birth, there were 28 legions scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Their job was first to conquer, but then also to build infrastructure in order to maintain their dominance. Ports, roads, bridges, that sort of thing. In fact, they said that uh, for, every, uh, for every one weapon that a soldier had in his backpack, he had five other tools to help build once they conquered. Well, second came economic power. This is the control of labor and production, right? So once uh, the Romans had come in and taken over an area and then established the infrastructure, uh, then uh, trade, commerce, cities, temples, statues, aqueducts, uh, baths, and amphitheaters, all of those things could be built as well. And Roman legions, they didn't stay in Rome and were sent out when it was time for battle. No, they scattered all throughout the region to make sure that they were keeping the frontiers safe. And then they were paid in the cash for that local economy. Third, there is political power. Uh, and this, for the empire, involved controlling the organization and the institution. And they said what's interesting is that any, quote, barbarian country, that uh, province that had been captured and properly Romanized by the legions and the culture, they then could be part of the government. In fact, they could become members of the Roman Senate. They could even become emperor. And then finally, and most importantly, was the ideological power that Rome wielded. And this meant controlling the meaning and interpretation of everything that happens. The titles of the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus were Divine, Son of God, God, God from God, Lord, Redeemer, Savior, Liberator, and Savior of the world. Now, to use any of those titles for Jesus during this time would be tantamount to high treason. 
After nearly 100 years of social unrest and 20 years of civil war, Octavian, soon to be Caesar Augustus, had saved the Roman Empire and brought peace to the Mediterranean. So here's how the core of Roman imperial theology worked. You worship the gods, which of course Caesar is one of them. You go to war with the gods' assistance. You are victorious for their help. You obtain peace from their generosity. And they always talked about the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. For Augustus and Rome, it was always peace, but it was peace that came through victory, war, and violence. Now, over and against the kingdom of Rome, you have the kingdom of God, right? What, what would life be like on earth if God was our true leader? Borg and Crossan refer to it as the eschatological kingdom of God, meaning this, the last and final kingdom on earth. Not producing the destruction of the earth or the end of the world, of course, but bringing an end to evil, injustice, violence, and imperialism. They call it the, uh, the great divine cleanup of the world, right? And it'll be no surprise to discover that contrary to Rome's peace through victory uh, method of advancing the kingdom, the kingdom of God was focused on peace through justice. Now, what's fascinating is the, what the Bible says about what will happen to the Gentiles or the non-Jews when God's kingdom finally comes, right? What's going to happen, especially to people like the Romans that had been uh, asserting their will and dominance over God's people? Well, one answer was extermination. In the great final battle at symbolic place Mount Megiddo, the Hebrew term is Har Megiddo, where we get Armageddon, or Armageddon, the battle at the end of the book of Revelation, the prophet Micah writes this, in anger and wrath, God says, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her downfall. Now she will be trodden down like the mire of the streets. All right? So that's one image that the Bible lifts up what will happen to those uh, who are outside of the Jewish community. Another answer in Scripture, instead of extermination, is conversion. In the great final feast at the symbolic place of Mount Zion, all nations will be converted not to Judaism, but to the God of justice and peace. Again, from the book of Micah, Micah repeats almost verbatim what's in Isaiah chapter 2. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of mountains. People shall stream to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, that the God of Jacob may teach us his ways. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So we have two utterly divergent descriptions of God's final uh, solution to the existence of imperialism. One is violent, the other nonviolent. One, extermination in the great battle. One, the conversion at the great final feast. Both are there in the Christian scriptures. So which one do you think is announced by the New Testament Christmas birth stories? When Luke's angels announce peace on earth to the shepherds uh, outside of Bethlehem, is it peace through victory or peace through justice? But lest we think we've got it all figured out, listen to how Borg and Crossan wrap up this section. They say, one final point. 
It is not accurate to distinguish the imperial kingdom of Rome from the eschatological kingdom of God by complaining one is earthly and the other heavenly, one is evil and the other holy, or one is demonic and the other sublime. No, that's simply name-calling. They are two alternative transcendental visions. Empire promises peace through force. Eschaton promises peace through nonviolent justice. Each requires programs and processes, strategies and tactics, wisdom and patience. The clash of visionary programs for our earth is the context for those Christmas stories. And they proclaim God's peace through justice over against Rome's peace through victory. So you don't get the power of the peace on earth story of the first Christmas unless you know the context that it's set within uh, the Roman way of doing things. Now, we can't be completely ready for next week's installment of the first Christmas without looking at one final component. And I want us to take us back to what life was like in the first century in Nazareth, where Jesus grew up prior, immediately prior to his birth. So according to scholars' best guess, Jesus was born uh, not at zero, but at uh, 4 BCE, just before the death of King Herod the Great. Now, when Herod died, uh, there were uprisings all over the Jewish homeland. Many wanted to replace the unjust Roman-appointed tyrant, which was King Herod, with a just and God-appointed ruler. And so many people were so fed up, they were ready to do whatever means necessary, including violent upheaval. Now, at that same time, there were no uh, first-rank Roman legionary forces in Israel. So when things started getting out of hand in Israel, Rome had to send troops from the Syrian legions that were just north of Israel. And they were actively guarding against the Parthian Empire. That was Rome's only serious threat at that time. So Rome was like, come on, you don't, what do you mean? I got to send, I, we're trying to battle the Parthians here, and you're going to make us take our soldiers down? Okay, well, when we come down, we're going to teach you a lesson so you don't bother us again, and we don't have to come back for many, many years. So there was among those rebellions one at Sephorus. Sephorus was the capital of the Galilee region, and it was just a few miles north of the small town of Nazareth where Jesus grew up. Now, according to Flavius Josephus's book, The Jewish Wars, there was a rebel named Judas, and he, quote, raised a considerable body of followers, broke open the royal arsenals in Sephorus, and after having armed his companions, attacked the other aspirants to power. So, three legions of soldiers were sent down uh, from Syria, and of course they had to, uh, to, to uh, squash the uprisings all over Israel, but a small detachment of soldiers uh, was sent off. Now, they were stationed, the, the three uh, legions of soldiers were stationed on the coast, on the Mediterranean coast, at uh, Ptolemaeus, um, and this is, again, three legions is over 18,000 armed soldiers. And as the Roman governor Varus took his main force uh, south, Josephus tells us that he at once sent a detachment of his army into the region of Galilee adjoining Ptolemaeus under the command of his friend Gaius. The latter routed all who opposed him, captured and burnt the city of Sephorus, and reduced its inhabitants to slavery. So Borg and Crossan asked this question. What do you think happened to the small adjacent villages when the legion forces struck their local city, Sephorus, 
with fire and sword. What do you think happened at Nazareth? A small, tiny hamlet about four miles or just an hour and a half's walk uh, over the Nazareth Ridge and across the floor of Beth Natofa Valley. Well, the historian Josephus doesn't give, it, give us any details about what happened in and around Sepphoris in 4 BC, but later, in 67 to 68 CE, in the Common Era, the next time the, Syrian, uh, the, the Roman legions from Syria moved into Israel, they combated a rebellion in Gergasa, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And Josephus does record what happened to those surrounding villages. Thousands of youth were killed. Women and children were taken as prisoners. The soldiers had permission to plunder property and burn entire villages. Not a single thing was left standing. Morgan Crossan write this. For Nazareth in 4 BCE, either there was a timely flight to hiding places well known to the local peasantry, or its males were murdered, its females raped, and its children enslaved. If they escaped, the little they had would be gone when they returned because, as another rebel said, when you had nothing, the Romans took even that. They make a desert and call it peace. Peace through victory and violence. Jesus grew up in Nazareth after that event in 4 BC. So undoubtedly, that event had shaped how the entire village uh, saw themselves and their relationship with Rome in the years to come. The Romans were not some distant mythological beings. They were soldiers who had devastated Nazareth's backyard right around the time that Jesus was born. This was the setting to which Jesus came into the world. So next week, we're going to start looking at the specific birth stories of Matthew and Luke. Until then, may each of us, as we begin this journey towards Christmas, have open hearts and open minds, be ready to hear the old familiar stories in maybe new and surprising ways. We might just have a new understanding of the very first Christmas. Amen.